This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses that you can get delivered to your door for a fraction of the price you'd pay in stores. To learn more, visit casper.com slash supertrain. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? <clears throat> it's good. I'm just sitting here looking at my Skype uh, account here, and it seems like squirting.flirts3 has tried to connect with me. Oh, he's a nice guy. You should totally accept it. Squirting flirts 3 Oh, squ- I'm sorry. Squirting flirts 3 3 yeah. No, no. Squirting flirts 9 is a, is a, oh. is a real regular guy. Yeah, well, I'm not sure whether... So Skype offers me... He's got just a egg avatar, but... Uh, Skype says I can block him, decline uh, the connection, or accept it. Hmm. What are you uh, leaning toward? <sighs> I mean, block and decline are both uh, just I, I'm kind of having a hard time deciding between the two. Accept feels a little bit close. I don't. Mm. I feel oh, like yeah. he wants to connect with me. A lot of people want to connect with me. I don't. I don't accept all of those offers. But I don't, I'm not sure I want to block him. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of provocative to block. Yeah, right. It seems like I know something about this person from their name, Squirting Flirts 3. I know enough to block them, you know? You think maybe uh, uh, you think uh, maybe he had a, a grandfather and a father that were that began the tradition? That you're talking continuing? about the flirtses? Yeah, like Squirting yeah. Flirts Senior, Squirting mm. Flirts Junior. <laughs> that sounds like a terrible comic book. Uh, I think I'm going to decline him and let's just get this off the table. Yeah. You know... Merlin, it may surprise you to know that there are a lot of people who are very invested in conventional narratives. There are a lot of people who are very invested in conventional narratives. Mm-hmm. That's what makes them conventional narratives. Oh, yeah. See, it's all the investment of all those people. Hmm. I'm a little bit adrift here. Can you can you give me some help? <laughs> well... Yeah. I mean, just a clue. You know, um, just you, start, you open with squirting flirts. Yeah, three. Um, yeah, squirting flirts three. So squirting you, you, dot you talk flirts. Talk about in like a like a literary tradition or like understanding how the world works. Yeah, or? I feel like I feel like conventional narratives in terms of understanding how the world works, in terms of applying our our muscle, our human muscle, to uh, making the world better. Conventional narratives tend to dominate. Mm-hmm. Over say al- alternate alternative narratives. Okay, that's that's all. Okay, that's all. That's all I'm saying. Point goes to John, right? I mean, that's it's not a it's not a tennis match. It's What's just a, like give a, me an example of an unconventional narrative. Hmm, unconventional narratives. You mean like where the story people are looking for certain kinds of templates for how things go with good guys and bad guys and yeah. happy endings and comebacks and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the one that that gets uh that gets me more more often than not is the um is the is the cult of expertise. We've talked about this. The idea in American life that um that there are experts. And those experts have special knowledge by, by virtue of their uh, of their expertise. Their education and their um, their experience, and of course there are experts. Of course there is specialized knowledge, but we 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 give experts um, 
the the transference principle too often applies, right? That that because someone is an expert in mollusks, say, we assume that they are an expert in in all the biological sciences, or we assume that we 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 allow them to speak on behalf of um, all French people, right? Because they are an expert in mollusks, <laughs> we presume that they can speak for French people, and. Uh, Rather than find just a normal French person or a couple of French people. And maybe without even exactly checking their credentials as a mollusk expert. Right. And that's the other thing. Like, what does it take to be a mollusk expert? Right. Is there a lot of competition? I mean, I've seen a lot of people get through many, many years of college who, um, who are barely, uh, barely capable of remembering to breathe regularly. Right, I mean, they have to. They have to. They have to remind themselves: breathe in, breathe out. But they have advanced degrees, mm-hmm. and I think. I mean, not. And I'm sure. I am absolutely certain. Looking at the demographics of our listeners, that they're out there somewhere right now is a mollusk expert listening well, I, I to this. I hope they'll, hope they'll speak up. Right, and I bet you I that hope they it wasn't your, uh, your your squirty flirt. I think that the mollusks can, can squirt. I think no, that's right. And what is a mollusk squirt called? A flirts. Oh, right, that's from the French. Yeah. So uh, maybe squirting flirts was trying. Maybe that's I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, this is a little time travel, a little little rip in the time travel scheme, where I was like, oh, I was talking to squirting flirts in the future, and now I'm going. Now I'm back in the past, and he's here to kill Sarah, Sarah Connor. Come with me if you want to live. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you French? Maybe. <laughs> no time, must run. <laughs> I bet you that the mollusk expert that contacts us lives in Tasmania. Mm. I think we still got pretty deep penetration with the Germans. Yeah, but you I know the Germans, I think the Germans listen to podcasts. I think they do and I think that they like mollusks and I don't know why the French get all the mollusk eating credit. Yeah. Right? The Germans they have a they have an ocean front. They have oceanfront property there. Yeah. They mostly use it to build V2 rockets, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I have found myself moving into, uh, now that I do a podcast with John Sturcusa, my whole way of thinking about the world is becoming really um, interesting. Mm-hmm. And is, I don't it, know, is it true that he is argumentative? No, I don't think so. No. But, you know, I can't wait till you guys get together. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so looking forward to that. Um, but I don't know. I This is something that's kind of dogged me for a long time is – you know, all the various kinds of, uh, whether you want to think of them as logical fallacies or cognitive biases, but like all the things that we walk around automatically thinking and doing without ever really evaluating, mm-hmm. like whether they're true or like why we might be getting it wrong. Because mm-hmm. I think it has, it has consequences, you know, it's ramifications. You know, in the same way that our kind of poor thinking can lead us to feel anxious and depressed, I think poor thinking, whether that's as a person or a citizen or whatever. Logical uh, fallacies or uh, what was the other one? Cognitive uh, disconnects. No, co- cognitive biases, yeah. Cognitive biases. And I mean, you take something as, it's one of those things that's always hiding in plain sight, and why I bring it up here, is something like the confirmation bias, hmm. which is the idea that you tend to seek out information seek out and then believe information that confirms what you believe 
rather than makes you doubt what you believe, mm -hmm. which I think is there's probably a tribal impulse for like why we do that in a lot of ways. There's a mm -hmm. self-preservation aspect to that, whether that's preservation of life or self. I think there's reasons. And I'm sorry to sound like a French philosopher, mm -hmm. but like I've been thinking about this a lot because when you talk about like conventional and unconventional narratives, I think that's because or, or a reliance on experts. And certainly there's the appeal to authority, all those different kinds of logical fallacies where like everything, all the pieces in our world stay fit together much easier if we can find the stories that keep telling us what we already think or tell us what we already believe or mm. tell us what we already reckon. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I know these, this, I'm far from the first person to bring this up, but once you start really thinking about those things, and you, you kind of have to think about those things because you're, you're fighting inertia or momentum or velocity. You're fighting, <laughs> you're, you've, got to, you've got to fight all of those narratives or counter those narratives every day. Like, do you really want the weird rock and roll candidate? Well, first of all, let's talk about whether I really am the weird rock and roll candidate. Mm. <laughs> but I don't know, because I, I, I don't know, I'm starting to think more and more that like, that a certain kind of self-doubt is, is a very healthy thing to have. Well, and, and self-doubt is precisely the thing that we do not have a, a culturally a way to apprise uh, or, or, or rate, you know, like self-doubt in politics, there is no room for self-doubt. They're just and and the 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 more successful, you know, the, the the bigger the race and the more successful the realm of politicians you get into, the more all of their self-doubt is, all of their expressed self-doubt is couched in the sort of um, like here is the self-effacement part of the program. Where it turns out at the end that self-effacement is actually a charming, uh, uh, you know, a charming strength that the candidate has. There's, there's, there's no, there's no opportunity for someone running for public office to genuinely say, "Not only do I not know, but I may be wrong." Right. And oh man, that's that that sounds. That sounds like trouble. Yeah, right. And 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 so you put somebody up, you know, you put somebody up at a, a, a on a lectern, and they say, "Well, not only do I not know about that, but I but I have some feelings about it, and I may be wrong." Um, you sound like an ignorant dummy. You sound like somebody who doesn't know about something, and it's surprising that you would even admit it. That like that shows that you're not particularly bright. Yeah, and then the next, you know, then your opponent stands up and says, "I know about this, and I am definitely not wrong," and everybody applauds. And in every other aspect of life, and particularly like the way that, that we're trending, we want people to be able to say, I mean, this is kind of the whole, the whole question about the way that we are sort of lecturing ourselves now and, and, and really pointedly um, engaging people when they speak ignorantly or, or insensitively and saying like, no, you, you know, not acceptable. You have to you have to wonder are we do we genuinely hope that they change or are we just trying to are we just trying to destroy people that are that that disagree with us? And I believe we we actually hope that they can change. But that 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 then requires of us that we accept it when people say I was wrong. Right. I was wrong and I and I, I've thought about it and I've talked to a lot of people. I've read some things. I realized I was wrong. It's hard for me to make this change. Um and I am trying to make this change. And so we have to allow for that. We have to accept it. And too often you get people that I, I, I feel like we have this like bicameral 
tendency to say, you're wrong and you need to learn. And the person goes, well, I'm, I, I, you're right and I'm trying to learn. And then we say, nobody can change. Well, I would expect you to say that. Yeah. You can't really change. And so what it turns out is that we don't, we're not trying to educate people or make the world better. We're just trying to identify heretics. Well, and that's partly what makes that uh, statement, which may be true, but it's a, it may be a true statement sometimes, but it's still, it really makes me bristle when people say, you know, whether it's something about raising awareness or it's about education. And I feel like the second one in particular is a real code word. It may mm. be, might even be a kind of dog whistle, which is that more people need to think like like I do, <laughs> is what that really means. Because mm-hmm. cause I, I don't think, and you're, you're kind of getting at what, one of the bias problems, which is that when we go out there and want to educate the world, well, we're really, I mean, how much, are we learning three new things for everything that we teach somebody else? Oh, yeah. Because we're, we're, we're sure interested in getting everybody else fixed. But like we're we're so certain about that need for that education that we may be closing out a lot of information that could educate us. It's true. And, you know, one of the things over the years, right, that has characterized me is the fact that I speak very um, emphatically, right? When I say something, I say it in a tone of voice and with a phraseology that suggests that I am that I'm very confident about what I'm saying. And as listeners to our program know, I say things confidently and then I say other things confidently. And that confidence is, is, is a tone and it's also probably a defense mechanism that I learned as a kid uh, to, you know, to, to, to masquerade as confidence or whatever. But it's also, and, all, and it also stems from like I'm thinking across a, a lot of terrain. Um, but I'm also wrong. I'm often wrong i'm deeply profoundly wrong and a lot of that uh a lot of that em- emphatic speaking is really a, a a projection of the fact that the voices in my head or or you know my 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 relationship with myself is is extremely self-critical so there are there's a chorus of of voices saying you are wrong all the time to me and when, when when I say something out loud, that seems like I'm pretty, you know, I'm definitive. Like you've always thought that and always will and everybody <laughs> should agree is the implication. Yeah. But in fact, you know, I'm just trying to shout down all the different uh, people, all the different me's who are saying, you should go back, you should crawl back into the hole that you came out of. And so, but you know, to to be in your 40s and to continue to be flexible and continue to say like i i know more now than i did even a year ago about so many things and some of those things really challenged stuff i had thought for decades um right. but because you know just because those things were challenging doesn't mean i stuck my head uh in the ground and now i've changed the way i think about stuff but to 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 go up and stand on the, you know, in public and say that when you're next to people who are, who are saying, I've always felt this way. I always will feel this way. This is, this is the only way to feel, which is, you know, kind of what we ask of candidates. You have one minute to speak, shower us with confidence and make us feel like, um, make us feel like you are deeply capable and, and full of expertise. So, you know, the conventional narrative of who we want to lead us is that we want 
you know, we want leaders without doubt. Right. And that, but in every other aspect of life, we recognize that people without doubt are, are dangerous. People without doubt are, are unhealthy. Both they are personally unhealthy and they're unhealthy for us. Like never follow a leader that doesn't express doubt seems to be something we should teach. Uh, we should teach ourselves and teach our kids. Because it, the, I'm, thinking, I'm trying to think of the implications of that, and I, I can't get away from the, the personal aspect of this, which is that we feel like everybody else should be endlessly flexible about learning the things that we're inflexible about, <laughs> I think, on a personal level. Yeah. And so the problem is, though, if you had a candidate or a public figure or somebody who was – there aren't that many people in a position of power who are doing what you're, what you're saying because they may like that – personally in somebody who's being who they're correcting but they wouldn't want that in a leader you know you wouldn't want that because that go you pretty soon you go straight from i'm trying to keep an open mind and learn to you know evolve and adapt you go straight from that to like well you're a flip-flopper yeah flip-flopper or somebody you know without those without those true convictions you're still you're still developing you're not ready to be a leader yet because you're still figuring all this out uh you're still figuring it out that's right and get <laughs> get back to us when you have it all figured out it, it's exactly right and 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 the idea that we um the idea that there is such a thing right i mean there absolutely are experts about mollusks who just get it they just not only have they studied all the the molluscine uh, valves, all the all the valves. They you know get your all. Buy valves. You got your other valves, but they also get them. You know what I mean? Like they feel they they uh they have a they were just made to know about mollusks, and they you know they rise to the top of their field, but but they have a very very constrained uh, realm of knowledge, right? They know about a thing. They know about this thing. And that's also true. That's also true in the realms of public policy and law. And, you know, there are people that are just expert tort lawyers. And there are people that are expert uh, transportation engineers. And, uh, and, and, and I, we, we talked about this when I went on that uh, USO tour where you get these lieutenant colonels that are just experts um, in being a lieutenant colonel in the oh, U.S. Air right. Force. Like you know so much more. I mean, you as a kid, you could identify plane shapes. You know, planes by their shape in the sky. You know more about ships and planes than certainly probably ninety percent of Americans. But you know way less about the specifics than any of the people on that base. Right. Way, way, way less about about certain. You know, like. I walked into those bases and I was like, so, you know, is that an M60? And everybody laughed. Because we haven't used like, those in 30 years. Yeah, sir. that's right. I was just like, oh, <laughs> shit. But, you know, but what happens is that you take that lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force who knows absolutely everything about being a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force and you put him up against and then he decides to run for the, the uh, U.S. House of Representatives and he's running against somebody who you know, isn't even an artist, but let's just say is somebody who's ha who's run a series of, uh, you know, a series of successful businesses, um, is a, you know, is a, a cross country bicycle racer and, you know, and a father of four and, and a member of the Kiwanis club and, and, 
the lieutenant colonel just looks more impressive. He just looks and seems more capable because he's achieved this status and this expertise. But in you know, in fact, he just he just knows how to run things within that very constrained world, you know. And the and the generalist, the 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 person that is, you know, the woman that came up and put herself through law school and then decided not to be a lawyer, but instead uh, decided to be a chef. And then she worked as a chef for a while and then she bought a hotel and then she decided, you know, she sold the hotel and, and decided to run for Congress. And it's like, that is the person that interests me. Like, like she's the one that I would want as our elected representative because the Lieutenant Colonel is going to get into the U S Congress and he's going to, he's going to succeed insofar as the Congress runs like the air force and, and, uh, and then he's going to try to modify the Congress to be more like the air force. Mm-hmm. Cause that's the thing he knows how to run. Cause that's the thing. And that, you know, and, and within the context of becoming a Lieutenant Colonel in the air force, you, it, it's the rare individual. And I know a couple of them who remained intellectually flexible there like the Air Force or the prosecutor's office or the, I mean, even, even the Sierra Club. Like they have institutional character and if you spend your whole career in those places, you just, you're, you're discouraged from remaining flexible. You're encouraged to, to harden around those core values that make people seem really um, principled even, right? I mean, right. They, 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 start to, they start to bleed over into the areas of, of like ethics where it seems like, well, that person's incredibly ethical. They have never deviated from the, from the, um, from the party line of, of the organization that they represent. And so, so we we know we can trust them, mm-hmm. and I I find somebody who has done twenty five different things and kind of, and some of them were failures. You know, I just I I intrinsically trust a person like that more because they they just bring actual you know and I guess it's back to the breadth versus depth question, but like we don't have a way in our culture to to measure breadth of experience in a, in a, in a, um, you know, with, with a similar yardstick as depth of experience. You know, you can't put the two side by side and, and do an accurate comparison. Mm, yeah. I, and I, again, I'll take the personal angle on this, which is, and, and state the obvious, which is that I think, I think what we, as people, something that concerns us as people is like you and I are talking about how like we like we would like to think that a certain amount of self doubt is very healthy because that means it doesn't mean that you don't believe in things. It means you're open to the idea that even your own perceptions could be wrong sometimes, and that you can't trust your own intellect in an unchanged state to always be correct. Like that sounds like something that a reasoned intellectual adult person would happily do as part of having you know a, a life of the mind in some ways. But the truth is that most of us are embarrassed about being wrong Mm. and we are fearful of being seen being wrong 
And this could, you could talk about candidates and leaders, but we could also just talk about our parents. We don't want our parents to be wrong or to be unsure or to be emotional or to be, you know, in flux. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember my mom getting a new haircut and me crying for two days, <laughs> you know? And, and so when you look at a leader, you know, part of being a leader is having that kind of resolution to what you say where it doesn't brook any, any self-doubt. You, they have to say something that sounds like it'll be true forever and could be, you know, carved in stone on a monument. Yeah, and I'm starting to have some some new insight, and I think it's I think a real insight that this is actually a white male problem. <laughs> you think? I mean, like honestly, like yeah, the way yeah. that the way that we are taught to think and the way that we talk, um, like recapitulates this problem, and it's one of the it's one of the reasons that more diversity in public office is just intrinsically healthy because not all cultures have that, um, you know, that massive dependence on authority, authoritative voice. Um, there's a lot, you know, I've been going around to community meetings for the last several months and sitting in the room and on a folding chair and kind of just listening to the way different communities in Seattle talk to each other. Hmm. And, and it's, it's weird because being sometimes being the only uh, white guy in the room, there is a little bit of the Heisenberg. Uh, yeah, even your presence there changes the discourse. Yeah, it just changes it changes it a, a little bit, but uh, but I mean, I guess probably a lot initially, but then as everybody gets comfortable with me being there, or or they realize like, you know, that I'm not a white demon, and and the conversation starts to heat up or it starts to move around the room in a in a uh, in an electrical way you know i realize that other other communities just don't talk uh, the same way that that they that each other do or that you know or certainly like the normal um room full of seattle white people talk and there's a lot more opportunity for people to say in real time say like you know what you just convinced me i was wrong and 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 you know, and nobody like leans over and puts a hand on their shoulder and goes, right on, man. You know, it's just part, it's, it's just accepted. It, it, it's part of the conversational flow. So, um, so yeah, it, it's, uh, I think, I think one of the solutions to the, to this problem is, is greater diversity of, of thinking. But, but I feel like it's this, the, the white male problem has infected American cultural life in a way that's going to be hard to to rattle out in a couple. <laughs> going to get an argument here in the next couple of years, right? Um, but I'm definitely, you know, I'm I'm definitely. Uh, I was surprised and continue to be surprised at how much institutional hostility there was directed at the idea that a that a generalist had a, had value relative to um you know the, the the words that keep coming up are like pragmatism and um and incre- incrementalism almost i mean that, i don't think they would use those words to describe themselves but you know the people there it's real politic the the idea that things need to get done a certain way they can't nothing can happen fast it all has to 
you know, it all has to proceed according to this pace and that somebody from outside doesn't just can't understand and is actually dangerous. You know, the, the idea that you turn somebody loose in city hall in their, uh, in their like floppy juggalo clown hat <laughs> to run down the hall and say like free money for everybody, you know, and they ready to legislate. Yeah. And it would just be like, they'd have to take, they'd have to take the new council person down in the basement and hit them with rubber truncheons until <laughs> they, uh, you know, un- until they pulled a Clarence Thomas and just sat on the bench for the next 25 years without saying anything. <laughs> yeah. Listen, just vote the, the Italian guy sitting next to you. Just vote with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's something comforting about the, the, the lies agreed to, you know, that we never have to like state that we agree. Like you think about the, the two, I feel like, I don't know if this is still true today cause I haven't been to many job interviews, but you know, the two kind of canonical questions that always get asked in a job interview. Uh, there's the one that where you say to somebody, well, what would you say is your, is your biggest, you know, net positive or what's the thing you think you could really bring to our team? And the person, so then there's the the pantomime where they have to go, hmm, that's a poser. Let me really think about that for a minute. Because, of course, everybody knows they're going to get asked that question in a job interview. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, uh, whatever. You say something like, well, you know, I do work really hard, but I'm also really diligent uh, and I, I'm a good listener. And you say all these huh. things that you know they want to hear. And they uh-huh. go, hmm, that's oh, really interesting. Good well, listener. Let me, uh, here's the second question. Let me, uh, let me uh, shake it up a little bit. What would you say is your biggest negative that you'd really like to Ooh, work on? Well. Well, I have to tell you, sir, I was not prepared for that question today. That's a poser. Let me think about it for a minute. Hmm. <laughs> I guess I'd say, if anything, sometimes I probably work too hard. Oh. Hmm. And you go, that well, that's, that's a super interesting answer. I appreciate your candor in sharing that with us today. And the thing is, like, everybody knows those questions are going to get asked. Everybody knows, I mean, that, like, what what the fuck do you think that person's going to say? Well, I didn't want you to find out that, like, I got let go from my last three jobs because I keep masturbating into the coffee pot. I'd say that's probably, in at the end of the day, my biggest net negative is I come in coffee. And they mm. go, well, that's mm. super interesting. Thank you for <laughs> No, you've got to say something because if you said something, if you actually said, uh, well, sometimes my social anxiety is so crippling that it's very difficult for me to even make it to work and I don't answer the phone for a week sometimes. Like that, that's, that's probably true. It's probably a negative and it's honest. But now not only are you not going to get that job, but you are the biggest weirdo and loser because mm. you actually answered the question. Mm. And, but do you, I mean, isn't that kind of similar to what happens if somebody exactly – right. You know, uh, I mean, when people ask you these kinds of questions, I don't know. I, for some reason, did you ever see Raising Arizona? What do you think? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> what kind of a I, question is that? I may, actually, I may actually drop in the audio here, but there's the scene where he is at length finally in front of the parole board again. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the one guy goes. They got a name for people like you, hi. That name is called recidivism. Repeat offender. Not a pretty name, is it, hi? No, sir. That's one bonehead name, but that ain't me anymore. You're not just telling us what we want to hear. No, sir. No way. Because we just want to hear the truth. Well, then I guess I am telling you what you want to hear. Boy, didn't we just tell you not to do that? Yes, sir. Okay, then. (laughs) (laughs) And that's like, isn't that it? Because, like, you know, (laughs) what what can you actually say in in a situation like that? Because Mm -hmm. you're, you're damned if you anything. Yeah. 
Not unless round is funny. <laughs> it was a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase. <laughs> uh, uh, tell me, Merlin, what is the last job interview you went to? Uh, the last job interview that I went to for like a, a, a position at a company. Describe, a re- describe it. You, you, uh, there only, was a, use only single words. There was a time <laughs> when Merlin Mann slicked his hair down, t- put his tie on. I did. I would put dippity doo in, and yep, it, I would and make it slick. I looked like Gordon Gecko. Carried your little, uh, carried your little binder, my valise, and your valise, my, my day timer. <laughs> you sat, you sat on a chair in a lobby until, with my legs swinging <laughs> until somebody came out and said, uh, "Merlin Mann." And you Mr. Were Man, like, the white men will see you now. That's me. That's me. Da-da. What was it? Um, let's see. The last, the last real job that I had that was close to a real job. My last actual real, according to Hoyle, job that I got uh, was in 1999. And it was a breeze. Uh, it was kind of a breeze. Because uh, I had gotten my, – my, a friend of mine had basically got me this interview. They knew that it was a really good fit for what these guys needed. And I, I met with the, the head engineer who ended up being one of my favorite bosses of all time. Hmm. And that went pretty well. But that was super unusual. Most of my job interviews, the ones that I can remember, were just just, just awful. Just awful. Because, I don't know, I feel like, you know, with the people that I know and the companies that I work with, there's been a huge trend, you know, especially in, the, uh, in this age of uh, computer maths. There's a lot more interest in really putting effort into recruiting and to like find the right person for the company, and without getting into too much detail, I think there's been a real revolution in thinking about how you how you hire to get the culture you want. Huh. Whereas most of the jobs for the kinds of positions I was at was more like, well, this person left, now we need a new person, and somebody would be sitting there and flipping through papers on their desk, you know, while you're while you're trying to make a pitch and oh. you send out resumes and you go through all that donkey drill. But I've had some of those that were just I'll never forget going in and trying to get a job at the Tallahassee Democrat, the paper. And doing web stuff there. Uh, and I just remember I, I it was sent into the person's office to like wait for them to come in. And it was just – it was so dismal. It was like something out of Brazil. And, they, and on the top of one of their file cabinets – I'll never forget this image. They had a burgundy sort of garnet and gold style FSU colors hat. They had a baseball cap that said coach on it. Coach. And all I had to do was look at that, and I felt like I could already see the off-site meeting where all the managers got hats that said coach because everything's going to be different now, you know, and, and <sighs> like real paradigmatically different. And it was, it was, it was a shit show. It was a, it was a terrible, terrible interview. And, of course, I spoke my mind. I said what I really thought about things, and I didn't end up getting the job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I am telling you what you want to hear then. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, we want to do is charge companies $15 for a website. You would do that for $10 an hour. When can you start? Uh, <laughs> where do I begin? Where do I even begin? Why are you charging them either the grand sum of $15 or why are you charging only $15? Like what could anybody possibly get out of anything for that amount of money? And why do you want to hire a web designer for that? Uh, why don't you just just hire a monkey with a paintbrush? Like... Anyway, now, now what about you? So the last real job, I know you had the job at the newsstand. I did for a long time. See, this is also the changing, you know, the way we work, changing so much. The move away from what I've called Richard Scary jobs to like, you know, knowledge worker jobs where a lot of us are working freelance or contract or temporarily or something. Yeah. I, I don't know that many people that have had the same job for five years. It just work, doesn't happen anymore. Working at the newsstand was absolutely a Richard Scary job. It's like... You know, here's you get a hat, you get a tool. Yeah, here's the grocer, and here's the painter, and here's the newspaper guy. 
uh, you, you stop in and you buy some bubble gum and you get a newspaper. And that world just feels completely gone. I mean, I guess there are still florists. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of books for, you know, we have a lot of children's books that were, that are like in, in German because of who we are. Mm-hmm. And so many of the German children's books are, are in that Richard Scarry vein of just, because there's so much of Germany that really prides itself on that still, right? The little town and there's the chocolatier and there's right. the pretzel guy and, and the, you know, the man with the hammer and the blue hat that comes and hammers things for you. Das Hammermeister. Das Hammermeister. Uh, but the last job I like interviewed for where I put on a tie, I went down to Seafirst Bank, which Seafirst was then purchased by um, Bank of America and became one of the, you know, one of the Bank of America uh, was absorbed, right? Became part of that Borg. But throughout my whole life, um, as a kid and up until, you know, up until my mid twenties, Seafirst was like the big Seattle bank. Seafirst pre pre, I mean, Washington mutual was still, a was still kind of a scrappy upstart bank. Seafirst was the, was where the, the old school kept their money. Like National Bank of Alaska is in Alaska, for those Alaskans listening. Anyway, I went to see first, and I got a job in their um, claims. What was it? It was the. It was their. You know, they they had a they had a lot of diversification as a bank, and it was like it was their loan, uh, their loan department, and people would take you know take loans out. And, and present collateral for those loans. So, you know, we had to have pictures of their boat, pictures of their property, pictures of their windmill or their, you know, or their like owl farm or whatever it was that they were trying to get, you know, they, that they were using as collateral to, to get a bigger loan to do something. And I worked in that office and I went in and, you know, it was very much like mid 90s kind of happy talk office interview and I really I, I really had competing uh, like competing pulls in me at that point in my life I, I was you know I was still struggling I was still drinking I was still living pretty rough in in Seattle kind of you know living a pretty uh, rough trade life at night and I and I felt like I needed to get straight I needed to go straight yeah you've talked about this before where you went through a phase where you felt like am I going to be this like what is my what is my life it mm-hmm. seems like you were sort of asking like so you know am I going to be this am I going to be that and you had that weird experience where you drank on the guy's boat yeah 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 so this was a different bank you know and I, and I felt like go straight like go get a job in a bank because they were kind of, in some of these places, you felt kind of tantalized with this whole like, okay, today's the day, make your decision. Are you ready to go to the next level? Right? That's right. That's right. I mean, if you start working at a bank and you have moxie, um, you can become one of the rich. And 
that that the, the, those com- that competing pull of like, do you live a life that is for you? Do you live an ethical life? Do you live a rewarding life, or do you live a life where you are making money? And if you're living a life where you're making money, and and you want to and you want to retain your humanity inside yourself somehow, then your outward life becomes a sort of suit of armor, an animated suit of armor that is out waging war, collecting uh, treasure, and then at a certain point, you take off the suit of armor, you, and then you have a pile of treasure, and then you can do good in the world, or then you can live freely. And I was never able to sustain it, but... You know, yeah, I, I went and sat in a job interview and told them that I was a diligent worker who believed in um, who believed in keeping things alphabetized. I very, very, very much liked to um, collate things. <laughs> um, I particular, Just, I'd say my biggest net negative. It's going to be hard to get me to stop collating efficiently. Yeah, you know, one of the things about me is I really like to go back into. Uh, disorganized files and and straighten them up, get them get them, you know. Like when I have some free time, I don't like to think of it, of it as free time. I like mm-hmm. to think of it as opportunities to go file, file time and file and and get back into the files and really straighten them up, straighten them out. And I and actually that's not wrong. Like I do like to sit and make sure that the that the um, that the blue copy is the third. Uh, piece of paper in every file and if the blue copy ends up the fourth piece of paper in a file i can feel it i can feel it across the across the office floor and i'll go find that file and i'll move that blue paper from fourth to third to get everything back straight with the world but, I mean, there's something very satisfying about that. It, oh. In the same way as tagging your MP3s or something, there's something very satisfying about having this known amount of work with some little physical actions. That, that's very engaging stuff. It is. It is. And, you know, and to get all caught up and to have all the files. Well, and, and what's great about a job like that is you're sitting on your stool and some harried uh, loan officer comes in with their tie askew and says, I can't find the, you know, the, uh, the Maisie Glotz file. And I'm like, oh, can't find the Maisie Glotz file, huh? Uh, who was working on it? He goes, I don't, you know, I don't know. Brandon, I think, had it for a while. And I'm like, follow me. And then I would walk across the, the trading floor and all the typewriters were going and the phones were ringing. And this, you know, and this sales guy or this loan officer behind me is, you know, he's getting paid more than I am. He's older than I am, but he can't find the Maisie Glotz file. And I would walk and I would go through the elevators and around the corner and and then there'd be a cart parked, you know, next to the next to the drinking fountain, and I would go right to the cart and I would go right to the second level of it and I would pull the Maisie Glotz file and I'd be like, There it is. With that kind of like, here you go. Here you go, buddy. Like how you're a con- like you're a conjurer. Yeah, like how hard was that? And he's just like, incredible. How did you know that was there? How could you have found that? Well, you know, you just you just gotta follow the you gotta follow the trail, my friend. You just gotta know the you gotta know the ins and outs. Like I really liked that, but I just I couldn't keep I couldn't keep on the wheel. I couldn't keep on the treadmill. Yeah. And I wasn't going from from that job, I I probably wasn't gonna end up being president of the bank. 
particularly since he you first got... You remember Mr. Roderick was the one who found the Maisie Glotz file. <laughs> the Maisie Glotz file is how I got my start in this business. Putting cigars I'm, in the war room. Now I'm CEO of Bank of America. Have I ever told you the story about the Maisie Glotz file? <laughs> no yes. one no one could find it. And he had made more money than me. And he, he, he I said, follow me. We walked across the room and so forth. And There were phones ringing and there were typewriters going. <laughs> I found it. I knew exactly where it was. <coughs> this episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Casper. To learn more, visit casper.com slash supertrain. Gang, this is real easy to understand. Casper offers an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Casper's mattress is one of a kind. It's a new hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. It's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. The best of two technologies come together for better nights and brighter days. Draw near and please listen closely because I have to tell you, I have been sleeping on a Casper mattress for months now and I love this thing. Yes, I love the quality of the product, and I love the quality of the sleep that I get, but you know what? Even these many months later, I'm still pleasingly stunned at how easy this company is to deal with and just how painless they've made the entire process. Woe betide you if you've ever tried to navigate the fiery hellscape that is shopping for costly mattresses in a retail store. It is the worst. With Casper, you do not get that. Here's how this works. With Casper, you order your mattress. A surprisingly small box magically appears at your door, and you carry it up to your room. Yes, by yourself. Try that with a typical king-size mattress. And it comes with this little dingus that you use to gently swipe open this bag full of awesome mattress. And the mattress gently exhales. It goes, and within minutes, you have everything you need for a good night's sleep. It's actually that easy. It is actually that simple. Here's the crazy part. Casper also offers an equally simple risk-free trial and return policy. So you try sleeping on your Casper for 100 nights, and if, for some reason, it's not to your liking, you can send it back to them. Free delivery, painless returns, made in America, and just sleep. Sleep, glorious sleep. As I mentioned, these prices are just uh, outrageously low. $500 for a twin-size mattress, going up to $950 for a king-size mattress. Try getting a mattress in a store for that kind of money. Won't happen. And on top of it all, Casper has a very special offer to listeners of Roderick on the Line. You can get $50 toward your mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash supertrain and using the very special offer code supertrain we must tell you terms and conditions apply but i'm just here to tell you it's a terrific mattress i love mine i hope you will give these folks a spin they're great to work with so our thanks to casper for many great nights sleep and for supporting roderick on the line Mm. (laughs) and now what now now you know now i can't i got my i got my so the other day i'm sitting around the house uh, my kid comes over and starts talking about something or other. And I said, oh, you know, my dad was really uh, expert at that. And we talk about my dad a lot. And she was like, mm, you know, uh, your dad and kind of looked thoughtfully. And I was like, you know what? We have not really sat down and looked at pictures of my dad in a while. And that's not something I want to, you know, I don't want my dad to just kind of turn into a ghost in her mind, right? Right. So I went upstairs and I found a bin of my dad's photographs. And I brought the bin down and I said, sit with me and we'll look at some pictures. And even in doing that, realized that the novelty of a box full of pictures, uh, it, had been, it had been long enough that 
the, uh, this was ve- a very new idea that I was going to open this box and it was going to be full of hard photographs. Right. Um, because usually when we look at pictures, we sit down and look at them on a device. And so we start going through pictures and uh, a couple of things became immediately clear. As we've discussed before, my dad was the worst photographer that humankind had ever produced. And he was an enthusiast. He was an enthusiastic photographer and easily the worst photographer. I mean, entire rolls of film where not a single photograph is not just in focus because none of them are in focus, (laughs) but so out of focus and so badly framed that it is unclear what my father was trying to photograph. And for even for a lot of them, I was an eyewitness to the events and I cannot discern what is being displayed. <laughs> what? You can't even tell like, what he was going for? I mean, it's like, okay, it's a soccer game. There are players on the field. None of them, even if it were in focus, none of them would be identifiable because you're shooting a soccer game with, a, you know, with, a, with the lens that somebody at the camera shop talked you into buying. Like and, too, too slow to see anything? Yeah, and it's just like, there, so basically there are just a lot of, it's like a mumbly peg You've taken a photograph of a mumbly pig game. There's just a lot of like completely interchangeable ch- children blops in a field of green. Or, you know, so often like my, my I would be sitting next to my sister on a couch and my dad would try and take a picture of us both and he would just kind of cut he would cut one half of each of our faces. How's that possible? Rather than say like either you guys scoot together so I can get you both in the frame or I'm going to take a step back so that you're both in the frame. That's a horrible photo. <laughs> he would just he would focus the camera on the on the the couch in between us and then we like a little bit of each of us would be caught in the shot. And and, and trying to, looking at these pictures and trying to just get inside my dad's head. He loved his camera. He loved taking photographs. And what's great about it is that he took so many that we still have the the benefit of that sort of one in a hundred rule where one in a hundred photographs he accidentally and I think I, I swear to you, I, I, I swear to you the some of the best photographs I think the camera went off accidentally, right? <laughs> he just he was standing there and he just touched the button, he was like, Oh damn it. And those are the those are the few that are A in focus, B interestingly framed. But so many, so many, so many, so many photographs that, that even the baby looks at and just is like, I, what, I, what, what are we looking at? Is that a train? Is that a, is that a person? Is it, a, is it dishes in the sink? I can't, I, can't, I can't tell. But, and I'm very reluctant to throw any of them away because even, even, of course. In, a, in, even in, a, in a bunch of out-of-focus pictures of a, you know, of a, like of the tide coming in or whatever, I, I still, I see the hand of my dad. I feel him and I feel him in them. And I'm just like, you know, these are, these, these mean something to me, but, but also I have a box of photos and even though most of them will not mean anything to her, like it's a real thing. It's a, they are things, they're, they're things you can put your hands on. And right now in my computer life, Right, I have this computer I'm talking to you on, which was made in 1998. I have not updated the operating system since 
2001. What? And I no. Oh, oh. We, we've talked we've talked okay. about this Mac before, right? This <laughs> Sorry. Is, it's it's a, a little heart fluctuation. There. It's a G3. It's a G3 Macintosh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel very scared right now. There are uh, there are ten thousand photographs on this computer that I don't. I'm not confident I can put anywhere else. Like I don't know where to put them, where they would be safe. Mm-hmm. People say, "Oh, you know, the hard drives die." If I put them in the cloud, I still am not confident that they're safe. And then all of a sudden, I'm incurring a forty dollar a month charge. Um, I can't. I don't think I can put them on my laptop. My phone is slowing down from being overburdened with accidental voice, accidental audio recordings that somehow keep migrating into my text field. Like, what is the advantage of that? I don't understand. Oh, like we accidentally hit the microphone? Yeah, and all of a sudden you're sending a voice text? That's a horrible feeling. What is that feature? Why would anybody use that? If you want to leave somebody a phone message, you can still do that. Why would you send a voice text? It's personal. Ugh. <laughs> anyway, so there's that. And so I have, what, what, what do I have here? I have 18,800 photos. Oh, my goodness. On my, um, on my computer, which I feel every day is sending me very clear messages that like, I'm about to die. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an old, old, old friend. I have, um, I have a 2.16 gigahertz Intel core. And I want to, I want to go to sleep now. I have, I have earned, I've earned my rest. <laughs> and I go, yes, 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 that's fine. I agree with you. You should, you should shuffle off this mortal coil. You should go to live on a farm. But please don't take my 18,800 photos with you. And, uh, and, and, I'm, and, and I fear. I fear. I fear for the future. Mm-hmm. I, don't have a, I don't have a box full of photos. I just have this thing. <laughs> well, you know, it's not, it would not be a particularly interesting topic. Uh, to go into detail here, but there are ways that we can help you with that. I wish John Circusa was here to mm-hmm. tell me that I, to tell me something. Well, I, know I, he knows I, I would be happy to help you with them, some of that, but I think there's a philosophical issue here. Um, in that, I mean, part of it is also that you think about the old workflow that we went through in the past. Workflow, what a dumb term. Yeah. The thing, the thing that we used to do. I've been, was, forbidden, I've been forbidden from saying the word ping. Yeah, you told me about that. Yeah, it sucks. That's a shame. That's a good word. Ping, ping me. Ping. Yeah, yeah. I can't say it now. Um, but you know, it used to be pretty straightforward, which was that you know there was a cycle, uh, you know, a loop basically where you would drop off film to be processed. Right. You'd buy new film while you're there because usually, in my case, at, at Eckert Drugs in Florida, you would get a discount when you bought film while you were having it processed. Mm-hmm. And so, but you just keep doing that. You just keep going in. You you know go in and you drop off the film, you go back, take more pictures, drop it off, and so on and so forth. And then as soon as you got that, you picked it up, you got the little envelope full of photos, you'd flip through it, you know? And, you know, those, at the very least now, you had a box full of envelopes of photos, which made it, like, it didn't mean that you could look at, would look at them all the time, but you did know where they were. And not that this is any more secure. I mean, my God, one hard copy of a photo and the negative in the same envelope, like, how secure is that? In terms yeah, it's of, true. If your house caught on fire, it's all, it's all right. gone. Or in my case, a leak in the basement took out, like, almost all my family photos. Oh, my God. It was God. a real bummer. I have, like, one solid, mushed-together block of photo now. 
It's it's mm-hmm. too, it's too sad to even think about. Mm-hmm. But but that um but 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 that but there was something about that where like you did have a hard copy now. You know, some of the snapshots from the 60s and 70s have not aged well. They've they've, they've they're real weird looking. <laughs> and, and and what's weird is some of the stuff from the 70s and 80s is even worse with my Kodak disc camera. <laughs> but, but anyway, <laughs> of course you had a disc camera. I had a disc camera. You were always an early adopter. Later I got an Elf. But uh, but you know, but in that case though, there was something. There's two parts to that. The one is that like you knew where the photos were; they're in the photo box. And the other one was at any point you could just kind of grab them and, and flip through them. And that's something you do a couple times a year. The thing is now I have, uh, like any new parent, I took you know hundreds or thousands of photos of our kid and then just didn't look at them. Oh yeah, it's really weird. But then when I signed up, the funny thing is when I signed up for Google Photo, which is one option you might want to look at, it pushes all your photos up into into the cloud. Uh, but what's cool is it goes through and it looks at all your photos and first of all it like groups them in interesting ways. It makes it all searchable, so you could search for cake or guitar and it will actually find it because they're Google and they're amazing. Oh. It's really neat. But then what also is cool is like it'll find if you did like, you know, you ever do like in the blast mode where you go and you'll take like 10 photos or something. It automatically makes animated GIFs out of those, which sounds silly. But there's something so cool about going like, you know, at the time I kicked myself for being such a dummy and taking 50 photos of a baby. But it turns it into an animated GIF. Wait a minute. How do you go into blast mode? Oh, um, if you're on at least iOS 8, I think, when you hold down the button, just keep holding the button down. And A, it'll take multiple photos for as long as you hold it. Uh, be careful because your phone's pretty full. <laughs> but B, then, it will also help pick out what it thinks is the best photo, which it's pretty good at. Like, Really? Yeah, it's in focus. And yeah, try it. It works. Last mode. Yeah, yeah. But, then, but, so what's, but here's the second part that's neat is once it's in the Google Photo thing, and this is not a, a plug for them, but uh, it was does really... Google, wait, does Google Photo cost money? No. So you don't trust it, right? No, I, I, I trust things that don't cost money. I, I don't cost money. <laughs> You can trust me. <laughs> um, but what's neat is then, so it chunks on all your photos. You can upload them from your phone. You can upload. You could you could do it right now today and upload it. Like I have twenty six gigs of photos and videos on my phone. It's it's asinine. So, but then here, what I'm trying to get at at length is then what's really cool is it says you go and you go into Google Google Photo and suddenly it's made it's made movies, it's made animations, it's made little sets, and you get to re-experience all your photos in this thing. So like I'm great at taking pictures. I'm just I'm not I'm not great at storing them and I'm not great at looking at them. And like that's kind of the important thing is remembering to look at them. You is Go- I mean? now is Google Photo going to take your photos and use them in advertisements to your friends? That is not the plan as I understand it. What it will do is use it to contribute to their corpus of data about photo recognition stuff. So that's why when you go into Google Photo, you go in and do a search for chair and it finds everything with a chair in it. Or you do a search for poster and it finds posters. It's totally bananas. Mm -hmm. And does facial recognition. Because, I mean, that's just, you know, again, the corpus. Corpus. The corpus. It's ramifications. But um, no, we 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 can help you with that. We can help you with that. But... You know, photos, I mean, like music, are changing so much. I mean, the way people take so many photos, but I always wonder what they do with them. Some people are great about it. They're like old school, and they're like printing things out and sending it to people or, you know, doing things like that. I, I just have all these photos, and I, I hardly ever look at them. Okay, now let me, let me walk you through this. Yep. I have, uh, uh, I have not updated my operating system. And so uh, the browsers are no longer supported. So how do I go to Google Photos without updating my operating system? See, this is the conundrum. I do not want to – I'm afraid if I update the operating system, it will brick everything. 
Well, we can talk about this, which, I mean, this is better for offline, probably, but what you what? need to... Are you kidding me? This isn't the most scintillating radio? Welcome, welcome to live computer support from five years ago with John Roderick. First, we're going to do something that's called a backup. What? No, back... that's so confusing. I know it's confusing, and it sounds scary, but it's not. It doesn't actually do anything to your back, and nothing goes up. But I... what... It... I go, I, I try and read how to do a backup, and they start talking about things that I don't understand, and I just... I just you end up just I, going and sorting things? Uh, yeah, and I end up like, oh, well, maybe what I should... <laughs> Whoa, you had a guitar there, too? Give me your E. Whoa, Whoa close enough for government. Work. All the way across the country. Since we did a Skype jam, <laughs> blues. We can help you with that, but you know, oh, everything comes at a psychic cost. Oh my God, that you you just said it all. The, <laughs> the fucking psychic. There's nothing cost. that doesn't cost psychic. I just, you know, the psychic cost of opening that bin and looking at out of focus pictures of my that my father took over the years and realizing, realizing that. Just as if you are raised in a house where everybody smokes cigarettes, you do not know that a house full of cigarette smoke is unusual and bad until you get to be an adult and you look back and you're like, oh, my God, everyone in my house was smoking menthol cigarettes all day and night the, my entire childhood. And that's, this is not true of me, but I have, I have friends. There was always at least one person smoking. There was a little bit of time when they had their last smoke in bed, yes, mm -hmm. in bed, snuffed it out and went to sleep where the smoke would just settle. But other than that, there was always someone smoking somewhere all the time. Yeah, and I, and, you know, I would go over to friends' houses and walk in the door, and it was just like, oh, my God, I'm inside of a, like a diseased lung. <laughs> but they had, no, they had no other reality, right? And my reality growing up was that, that you were constantly being photographed. You were my dad and I went uh, the, this thing that you described. We went to the photo shop where my dad knew all the people behind the counter. He knew the owner. He would hand over five rolls of film. He would buy five rolls of film. He would get the he would get the photos in the little envelopes from the people. You know, they would be like, "Oh, Dave Roderick," and they'd go get all the pictures and bring them out. And then we would get we'd go out into the car and we would look at the photographs. And as a child, yes, yes, absolutely. Right? As a child, I had no context to know that my dad was a bad photographer. <laughs> so my experience was you go out and sit in the car and sort through sometimes 80 photographs. And and then when when uh, when you could when that technology arrived where you could check a box and get doubles yeah, that was that was the '80s, man. We always got double prints. Yeah, that somewhere in the '80s, the photo people realized, like, hey, you know, we sort can... of like the the extra meat for a dollar of photography. Exactly, and then you can hand you can give the good ones to friends. Um, and my dad always got doubles, and so we would sit and and go through these pictures, and it was just like, oh, well, it seems like maybe the camera fired in while it was still in the bag on that one, <laughs> and then this this is. Sh 
<laughs> shot out the window of a moving car of some phone poles and there, there's some oh here's one of a blurry dog <laughs> that almost looks like a person over there but i had no i had no critical uh faculty to see like oh dad you're terrible at this stop or like take a class and so my reality was shaped by these photographs like i understood i understood human experience to be something that now I realize it isn't right. That this is that there's that you're enacting some, well, first of all, that it is incredibly hard to get a photograph and that, um, because dad, you know, dad didn't flip through these and be like, well, wasted another roll. Like, you know, that was his, that was his normal too. It was his normal too. And so, so, uh, so I had, I, I mean, I can't, I can't begin to describe how my own memories of things are shaped by having relived them through photographs of them that seem like they were taken by Mr. Magoo. <laughs> like the, those, you know that way where you look at a photograph of something that happened a week ago and the photograph kind of solidifies the memory a little bit like, oh, that's how it happened. And everything everything you had there looked like the cover of a shoegaze album. <laughs> yeah, right. Every, I mean, it's exactly right. It's like I that's why I responded so well to my bloody, my bloody Valentine. Valentine. I was just like, "What?" That's a guitar, I think. That was a good one. <laughs> just like my, just like it's it's like it's like right before my dad took any kind of pictures, he went and and dipped the lens of his camera in the top of a birthday cake. <laughs> I think we're ready now. <laughs> Let's go. I've got frosting all over the lens. Let's go. And and so yeah, I, but but so that shaped my perception, right? So profoundly, and and now you know, and it turns out my sister is a brilliant photographer. I have no idea, you know, she was in her thirties before she ever really picked up a camera and pointed it at anything. And from the first time I saw a photograph by her, I was like, oh my god, you're a genius! Like she's got an eye. Because she and three friends, you know, she and her friends went around the world together and they all were, were taking photographs of the same things. And the other two were taking very, very good photographs of things. But then my sister's photo of the exact same moment would just be framed in a way that both told the story and created emotional tension. And, you know, just it was just like, where did I had no idea that that was lurking inside my little sister and I'm not a bad photographer but uh, like oh I wish I could I wish I could sit my dad down and just go through these photographs but the thing was he was completely resistant to the idea that he wasn't great at everything so it was like dad what were you going for here so oh because he's, he's a politician yeah that's right <clears throat> I don't know maybe my finger slipped for 14 me, years I know and you made me think when you when you you had your um, your monologue a while back about how important it is to, to take and post selfies just because it's a good idea. And I've been thinking about like the way photos have changed. And like now I take I take photos of funny signs. I, I take I take photos of things that I see that, that that amuse me. I have a handful of photos of my daughter doing things that are cute. But you know what? <clears throat> One that we don't do as much as we used to. I mean, the group photo. I miss the group photo. Yeah. The, you know, I think I, I want to really get a stake in the ground to get better at group photos. Yeah, the group photo because they're always That's so important. It's always a it's always a like selfie, right? Selfie group photo. It's very seldom where somebody stands back and and everybody and you know and everybody's got red eye. Yeah, right. And everybody's holding up a plastic keg cup. <laughs> but I mean, you know, at family events and stuff like that, it's usually not the young person 
who thinks to go, okay, everybody, let's do a group photo because that's dorky. Like, why would you do that? But like, you're so, I'm so glad I've got some of those. You know what I mean? Hmm. Me too. There are, there are a few parties, a few college parties where at the time I remember looking at the group photo and being like, oh, you know, what, you know, why did I think it was, why did I think it was funny to stick a lit cigarette up my nose? It kind of. It's pretty funny. It kind of ruins, <laughs> kind of ruins the photo. Like I was, I so wanted to be Chevy Chase in 1979. I was just like, hey, cigarette in your ear. <laughs> look at me. <laughs> look at me. But then now I look at that group photo and there's 25 people in it. And all, I'm looking at all the people in the background and I'm just like, oh, right. That girl, you know, she that she went on. Oh, her sister died or, you know, like there's all there's all those memories that the group photo allows. I don't know. As we were sitting here talking, I found a photograph of me and and a woman who lives in Barcelona, who was like a big, uh, like a, an enormous friend of the long winters, one of our great boosters. And she was our tour manager. She was our pal. And then right at the end, after, you know, after years of touring together and she came to Seattle and lived with me for a while. And like, she was really one of our number one rock friends. We went to Barcelona sort of the last maybe second to last or last trip to Spain that we did. And we played a huge show. It was a, it was like a, a festival in downtown Barcelona and the, there were two headliners. Um, and one was the long winters. And, um, the other was, um, uh, a British band, not babes in Toyland. Was it, was it gr- girls? Girls? Was it girls in the group? No, no, gr- no girls. Just a bunch of old white guys. English band. English band. Mumford and Son. No, pre, pre, they're old, older, older than us, um, and great. One of the great pop bands. Uh, pure, pure pop. What pop? Uh, pure, pure guitar pop. Posies? Like, no, that, that's an American band. That's true. English. Band. I have a record of them playing in Spain, though. You, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. And when I, when I, when I finally get to the name, it's going to be so embarrassing. Oh no, we're keeping all this in. Um, uh, um, o- o- older, older people. Older, but not not tons a- older. A- like popular in the 80s, uh, 90s, 90s band as Bush. Not Bush. Not they're not grunge. They were like, they were like guitar pop posies stylish but not but better than the posies and i hate to say that out loud but you know much better oh wow um uh and they have a name like uh children in schools um toyland children uh, in schools uh, not fountains wayne that's new jersey new jersey band uh uh, they were the the Teenage Fan Club. Holy shit, I love Teenage Fan Club. I know you do, and I do too. Teenage, it was always there. So the, so that'll give you a sense of how our career in Spain was going. You opened for Teenage going. Fan Club? No, we didn't open for them. They were the headliners on Friday night. We were the headliners on Saturday night. Wow, you used to be John Roderick. It was big. It was a, it was a big deal. She was denim wherever oh, and, she goes. Oh, and Teenage Fan Club, you know, they, they like, uh, they really... Uh, those guys really 
blew me away and and um, always always had and I was you know I mean I, it's hard. They made to, my they made my first favorite record of the 1990s. Everything flows. Yeah, right. And, it's and one of the greatest rock songs of all time. It's hard for me to say that I'm a super fan because I just took three minutes to remember their name. But of all of the <laughs> of all of the all the great bands, all the great bands. But uh, but of all the bands of that style of that time, like they really did destroy me and anyway so just I, that's just name droppy to give you some sense of when I when we arrived in Barcelona on that tour it was like are you kidding me like the, the posters were all over the city and it was like teenage fan club the long winters like co-headlining this this festival that was taking place on stages around the city and we were playing in the like the Plaza Mayor in the center outdoors in the center of town Saturday night it was it was massive for me and great. Dave Bazan was there wow. and and played on the same stage with us and um and we jumped out I think and played uh as his backing band for a little while. I had really long hair at the time. Maybe was missing a tooth. Mm-hmm. But our good friend, the woman who had been with us through thick and thin, at the end of the tour which was, you know, which had, you know, it had been a couple of week tour, which she'd been with us for every, every night. Um, she said, okay, well, uh, you know, you, your flight is tomorrow morning and I'll send you guys a check, uh, you know, when, uh, when it all shakes out. And she never did. Oh. She absconded. Ew. With, um, with the, with a big, what ultimately was a big bag of money. And uh, we went back and forth, and it was I was so betrayed, and I was just so devastated. Like, but you're our friend. You've been our friend. She was like, oh, I just had some, you know, I'll get it to you. Like, there was a lot. There was like nine months of sort of like, what's your bank account number? I'll wire it tomorrow. And, right, right. And, and uh, I just found a picture of the two of us, um, she and I, like sitting, you know, she's kind of like leaning on me in a cafe somewhere in Valladolid. And I felt very sentimental, even as I'm sitting talking to you about Google Photos, and I sent it to her. I haven't communicated with her in several years. Oh, that's nice. Send it to her sort of without comment. Um, so we'll see. We'll see they if that, it, They call it a Spanish threat. We'll see. <laughs> send it to her wrapped in a newspaper, Ra- wrapped, in, wrapped around a fish. And wrapped around a bulletproof vest. Wrapped around a Godfather <laughs> 2 DVD. <laughs> We'll see what happens. You know what? Maybe she'll send me 10,000 euros. <laughs> oh, buenos dias. I am from Castile. 